You're listening to audio from Pillar Church of Jacksonville, where our goal is to know Jesus and to make him known. If you have questions or want to know more about us, and can text Pillar to 94000 or visit our website at pillarjacks.com. Guys, uh, my name's Scott, and I'm one of the elders here at Pillar Jacks. Uh, Happy New Year to you guys as well. Uh, I do have one question, so it's been two days now. Who's... Uh, Who's falling off track of their New Year's resolutions? Nobody's going to fess up to it, huh? <laughs> so I'm kidding. By no means will I condemn you for that. So as you can see, the title of today's uh, sermon. <laughs> uh, but seriously, so if you guys have your Bibles, uh, would you please uh, turn with me to the book of John? Uh, if you're using one of the provided Bibles, uh, it's located on page 840. We'll be starting in uh, chapter 7, so chapter 7 is kind of interesting, it flows right into uh, chapter 8, so we'll be right in that last verse, starting in 53 and moving through chapter 8 through verse 11. Uh, I'm sure as most of you have, uh, you know, your your Bibles, if you have the ESV, uh, most likely uh, at the top of the text in all caps, in double brackets, read something like this, the earliest manuscripts do not include Verses uh, chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, uh, verses 11. Uh, don't let this, don't, don't sound any alarm here. Don't let the red flags go off in your head. Uh, you may perhaps think, like, is this section of Scripture uh, reliable based off of that heading in there? Or, you know, you might uh, think that it's a, you know, it's a good thing that, <laughs> Theologians, much, much smarter than myself, uh, have studied and explored this more in depth for a long time. So much of the evidence that surrounds this particular narrative of the woman that is caught in adultery is that it is absent from the early manuscripts, as it says either at the top of your passage or possibly in a footnote. But there's no number associated with how many and which manuscripts it does uh, happen to appear in. But when it does appear, it's located in, in different areas of John, okay? Seven uh, and up to uh, verse, uh, chapter 21, and then it even appears one time in the chapter of uh, Luke. Please remember that, too, that there's texts within the Bible that are difficult to understand. Um, we explored a few sermons ago when uh, Pastor J.D. was preaching through John chapter 5, kind of hit on why there was no verse 4 in there. Don't let this deter from your approaching the Scripture reverently and prayerfully. And if you're uncertain, as you see today, this is a good time to start researching how we got the Bible to begin with and how, over time, that it stood the test uh, and stood the scrutiny uh, over that time as well. As we read through today's text, though, Uh, I don't believe it to be a question as to whether or not uh, this, in fact, this face-to-face encounter with Christ uh, occurred. For for this, for me, I think it's more of a, uh, where exactly does it fit within John's gospel? Again, my attempt today is uh, not to um, spend a lot of time on why trust the Bible. It's, you know, it's... Where does this particular text fit in Scripture? I mention these things because we could be here for hours. 
be here for days, we could be here for weeks. We'd have to bust out our systematic theology books. Um, what I want to do, and I want to attempt to bring to you a level of certainty and confidence that it is perfectly written where God intended it to be, and that it in fact does not interrupt the sequence of John's writing from chapter 7, verse 52, and where we will be starting in next week's sermon in chapter 8, verse 12. I believe that its reliability uh, will speak for itself as we explore today's text, and I hope, my hope is, that you will see that this is one of the most remarkable displays of God's grace in the Scriptures. Should you join me again, uh, starting in John chapter 7, verse 53, let's begin with God's Word. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Would you guys pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. I pray uh, today as your uh, word is spoken that it would be clearly heard this morning. That you would stir up the hearts here to right worship and sanctify us uh, in your word. For your word is truth and we can rest in that. I thank you for, thank you that, God, as we enter into this new year, uh, that we can say with confidence that you God, do not change, that you are the same yesterday, uh, today, and forever. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. So anyone who has, has read through the Gospels themselves, uh, you have seen Jesus' Jesus's ministry and ch- uh, teaching challenged time and time again, and most notably, by the same group of people we know as the Pharisees. It's men who cared more about themselves and the outward appearance of righteousness than integrity and truth that's found in God's Word. 
Listen, it absolutely drove them crazy when Jesus was found ministering, ministering to and dining with sinners. When he was healing on the Sabbath, teaching the scriptures in the temple, that's where he spent a lot of his time, and the list could go on. But I say these because these are all these things that Jesus did during his ministry that the Pharisees would never, ever imagine doing in the midst of all of their theological legalism. This woman, this woman that we just read about uh, in this narrative, she would be used by the Pharisees for the purposes of, of solely challenging Jesus. I want to refer to it as a trial of sorts. There's two things today that I want you guys to think about, two questions that I'm, I'm going to ask. If you walk away with anything, I want you guys to ponder on these two questions. First one is, do you do well to be the person that is always ready to cast the first stone? Much like the Pharisees could never see their own unrighteousness and hypocrisy, we too run the heavy risk of not removing the log from our own eye. I'll say the question again. Do you do well to be the person that is always ready to cast the first stone. My second question for today is, do you seek to reflect the gentleness and compassion of Jesus? We are so quick, we are so quick to forget the mercy in which God has shown us. Our goal is reflection. It's not perfection. Perfection is Christ. We are to reflect that. Take sin seriously and embrace Christ in every way. The second question again I'll repeat is, is, do you seek to reflect the gentleness and compassion of Jesus? I want you guys to think about that as we go through this narrative today. I mentioned before that this is, in fact, kind of a brief trial that the Pharisees are attempting to place Christ on. You know, if we go from last week's text that included the, the celebration of the Feast of Booths where Jesus' brothers had attempted to convince him to go to the Feast of Booths to show the disciples who he was. So Pastor J.D. briefly touched on, on it last Sunday exactly what the Feast of Booths was and what this particular observance was. It's a week-long celebration to commemorate the Israelites' trek through the wilderness. The first two verses of this week's text indicates the conclusion of that celebration. It says, folks began to return to their homes and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives I'm going to attempt here to kind of set you up, guys, set you up with uh, some context and setting. So I had the opportunity to go to Israel for some training about four years ago. Uh, and one of the unique things that we got to do was actually go to Jerusalem. And we, you know, we went there for a day, but it just it didn't do justice. We, we didn't have enough time uh, to do everything that we wanted to do there. Uh, and it was just something that, that was very near and dear to my heart at that time, too. And, you know, I was still young in the faith, but... Uh, as I read through the Bible, and I'm sure you guys do as well, um, you know, all these areas that Jesus spends his time, like the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, Calvary, where Christ would eventually hang on the cross, Church of Golgotha, 
um, they're all very close, okay? So the temple itself and then the walls around the temple, as I'm standing on the outside of this wall, I can see the Mount of Olives. If you're walking out of that, and there's structures built over these places now, okay? Um, the Garden of Cathesimene is right to the right. The temple itself, the Church of Golgotha and Calvary's Hill is about a football uh, fields away. I measure everything in football fields when it comes to distance. So, um, But the Mount of Olives itself is about three football fields. So I say that because, I, again, I want to give you guys some context as to the conclusion of the Feast of Booths. And as we walk through today's narrative, uh, you know, where everybody's heading to and where Christ is spending some of his time as well. So as we see, uh, Jesus returned to the temple that following morning. And just like he did in John 14 in last week's text, during the Feast of Booths, he taught. He was always teaching. He taught a multitude of people, and a multitude of people gathered where he was, marveled and awestruck at his knowledge and ability to teach the Scriptures. Now, this couldn't go on long enough, and you and I know that this type of gathering can't go without interruption, right? From the ones who, again, despised Christ the most and challenged him time and time again, it was the Pharisees. Knowing well enough that Jesus, again, would have a large crowd with him, as we see in verse 2, that all the people came to him. The Pharisees and scribes come, they're they're bringing this woman, they're dragging this woman into the center of the temple where Jesus is teaching. She'd been caught in the act of adultery. Just think for a moment the scene that is at hand here. It all happens very quickly. It's 12 verses. This woman, she's physically and forcefully pulled from whatever man she had been caught with. And I imagine... Uh, as these people are sitting here and listening to uh, Christ's teaching, all the eyes from, went from Jesus to this woman. I imagine that uh, emotions are high, especially for this woman, especially for this crowd who's sitting here absorbing everything that Jesus is saying to him. At the same time, they, they may actually be looking at Jesus to see how he responds to this. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Jesus has now been challenged. And what the Pharisees are referring to is a chapter in Deuteronomy, chapter 22 specifically, verse 22. Where it states that if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. And what we don't know is whether or not this man that she was caught with was married. And what we don't know is whether or not this woman was in fact married. Okay? But what I do want to deconstruct here is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. There is something missing here which I'm sure that most of you kind of have caught on to. Where is the other guilty party? Where is the man in all of this? 
It's starting to become a little bit clearer and clearer as we read on the true motive and the heart behind all of this. John in verse 6 writes, This they said to test him, that they might uh, have some charge to bring against him. We're speaking to Jesus. Reveals the true meaning behind this whole entire trial of Jesus. Because we know that even though this woman had been caught in such a heinous act, grotesque act, the Pharisees had absolutely no intention to truly see it through that this woman be punished for her crime of adultery. Listen, they're, they're not honestly concerned with the law, okay? If they had been, they would have brought the man forward as well. They would have been trying him for his adulterous behavior. Because the, call, the law, again, called for both parties to be tried. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're so heavily bound to and by the law. They could not, they could not see their own spiritual blindness, their own self-righteousness, their legalistic ways, and their hypocrisy. They took something that God had given the Israelites. They took the law. They added to it, and they added to it, and they added to it time and time and time again. And this they did just because it was a benefit to them and only them. And just like we see with this woman. Just like we see with this woman. She is being used by the Pharisees. Used to, in a, a, a very pitiful attempt to trap Jesus. Again, if I had to speculate just for a moment here that... Uh, you know, the focus had been on Jesus and his teaching. And, you know, as she's brought here into the temple, the eyes go back on the woman. I imagine that, you know, through all this, everybody's just waiting to see what happens. Eyes from Jesus back to, back to the woman. They sit and they wait and they see what he would say or what he would do. And the intent here, like the Pharisees always did, was to twist and to slander from the start so that they would, and they, would, they would do it by any means necessary. The other half of verse 6 is the first of uh, two repeated acts that we see Jesus do, uh, where he bends down and he's, he's writing with his finger uh, on the ground. But while he's doing that, in the midst of all that, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they continue to question Jesus. This whole interaction begins to intensify. And then we find out that Jesus stands up and he boldly exclaims, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, which one of you scribes and Pharisees is qualified to throw a stone at this woman and to rightfully judge her? There's once again another detail of the law that these men neglected to bear in mind. Even though they themselves were the witnesses, which again, they had to be, it was the witnesses to that specific crime. 
Only those witnesses who were not guilty of that same sin or living in sin could participate. Jesus demanded that uh, in this case, the only single qualification that must be met in order to see this stoning through was that judgment takes place by a sinless one. Jesus' response, short and simple, so powerful, spoke directly to the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees. We know that no one can perfectly keep the commands of the laws, the ceremonial, the civil, and the moral. I think it's fitting to imagine that there's probably silence and whispering happening among uh, the men that are surrounding this woman. And once more, like Jesus had, had did, and I mentioned that he did this twice, uh, he, bends down, he bends down again, and he continues to write on the ground. I wonder if you, like me, are imagining, just for a second, hey, what is it that he could possibly be writing in the ground? And theologians over time have speculated uh, what it is that Jesus is, in fact, writing. I'm going, to just, I'm going to talk about two today, um, and two that I found most interesting and worth speaking on. The one that Jesus was, one is that Jesus was writing the Ten Commandments, uh, just as you know, in Deuteronomy 9, uh, verse 10, describes these commandments as being written by the finger of God. If you remember back in verse 5, Jesus, who'd been challenged by the Pharisees to see whether or not he opposed the law, just as God has commanded through Moses. In fact, these men are completely naive to the fact that it was God incarnate, the author of the law, that stand directly in front of them. The other possibility, the second thing I'm going to mention here is Jesus is bending down and he's writing every name of the men that stand around this woman. And the sins that are in their lives. No matter which way one speculates what it is that Jesus is writing, it was enough. It was to delay and to give these men time to think. But take a look in verse 9. In fact, when they heard this, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. These men stood down. They began to lower their stones. Depart from the scene, again, from the older to the younger. Hopefully recognizing their own sins and their unrighteous judgment. Remember for a, a minute with me here that the only qualification that had to be met in order for those who were themselves not guilty of the same sin. It was not just... Uh, the sin of adultery, however, that Christ demanded, it was that these men be free from any and all sin. Impossible. And Jesus made that quite clear uh, by when we speculate, the second one, when he exposed their own sins to them. Again, the woman stood, she stood there alone with the one that was the only one who had the right to stand there and the only one who met his own qualification and requirement. Christ the only one without sin, perfect, spotless, blameless, 
the rightful judge of humanity. I want to mention that Jesus is not glossing over the sin of adultery this woman had been caught in, and neither am I. I am not condoning it at all. And Jesus, in the last two verses here, 10 and 11, says to the woman, says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus makes clear that the woman is not innocent. He was the only one in that crowd who, in perfect righteousness and judgment, who could condemn and require that woman's death through stoning. But at the same time, Jesus was and is the only person who could, in perfect righteousness, pardon her. I also want to note that this woman refers to Jesus as Lord. We don't know if she knew who Jesus was before, if she'd had any interaction with Jesus before this particular moment in this narrative. But I do think that it stands strong and in favor when we see in John 10, verse 27, where he writes, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Folks, that's the verdict through this trial. Don't miss the beauty of the gospel in this. It would be Christ that would bear the the punishment. It would be Christ that is condemned in her place. It would be Christ who is crushed for hers, mine, and your iniquities. I have two points today when we talk about our response and application. The first one being rest in Jesus Christ and be free from the grip of sin. Say again. Rest in Jesus Christ and be free from the grip of sin. At the center of every person is deep-rooted sin and selfish sin. Behind that sin is the condition of a person's heart. Our sin is not a matter of behavior, but a heart that is in need of cleansing. (laughs) For the Christian, we are forgiven sinners with a renewed heart, softened and being transformed more and more into the likeness and image of Christ. Does this mean that our hearts are perfected? No, by no means. But they are renewed daily, always repenting and fleeing from the temptation of sin. You know, back in the, the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 15, verses 18 to 19, perfectly captures the contamination of sin and where it ultimately flows from. Here's what it says. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And these are just a few to mention. Like this woman caught in adultery, she not only exposed her sins, but the sins and hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes, two hearts, hearts of the Pharisees and the heart of this woman, destroyed and deceived by the reckless power of sin. A woman who is living in a sexually immoral life would be used as an object at the epicenter of the Pharisees' legalistic and heart-wrenching attempt to back Jesus into a corner as if they thought that they could question the Son of God on the law. 
For the believer, I tell you, don't get entrapped by the snare of sin. Humble yourselves. Examine your heart daily. The world we live in is fallen and failing. Continue to wage war against the sins in your lives. Rest in the grace and the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to share something with you guys that kind of ironic as I, as I was preparing this sermon and writing this particular section, uh, our youngest daughter who's six months old, she joined me on occasion early in the morning. Um, I'd be deep in thought and all of a sudden around 5.30 a.m. I would hear this repeated thud in the room directly above the dining room where, where I was working. Uh, you know, proceeded by some babbling and a loud shriek. I'd go grab her, prepare, prepare a bottle for her and set her next to me in a rocker while she'd stare, stare at me and chow down on the bottle. I share this with you because there's nothing more that will expose your sin than raising children. Listen, this was, a, this was nothing more than a mild interruption. But this mild interruption could have taken root with anger and other indwelling sin. Christ has been so gracious to the believer uh, in this fight against sin, and we do not do it alone. The work of the Spirit in the life of a believer has the final word against sin, helping us to resist sin, grow in grace, and obey Christ. Remember how Christ stated to his disciples that it is to their advantage that he go away so that he can send the helper. That's good news. My second application point today is look to the cross, obey Christ, and rejoice in his grace and mercy in your life. Look to the cross, obey Christ, and rejoice in his grace and mercy in your life. One way for a Christian to look at and to be reminded of the work that God has done in their life uh, through Jesus is to write out a testimony. Uh, here at Pillar Jacks, you know, we often get to stand witness to and enjoy the testimonies uh, of folks' journey of coming to faith in Christ during and before the ordinance of baptism. It's truly a time where a church gets to, you know, we get to rejoice in another life that has been won to Christ. It's a humble memory of our past and the condemnation that we do deserve. Much like the woman in today's text. Jesus gives this woman a glimpse of the gospel here in John 8. One that would foreshadow the eventual death on the cross that Christ would bear in John 19. Jesus, as rightful judge, presides over freedom and condemnation, life and death. God pronounces judgment over sin, as Paul writes in Romans 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but provides a way through his Son to escape this condemnation. As we see in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Folks, I would encourage you, if you are a Christian and you have not written down your testimony, do it. Look at the life that you once lived in rebellion and apart from Christ. What conversion looked like and what life in, in Christ look, has looked like since then. I trust you will not be disappointed. If you're here and you are not a Christian yet, look at the sin that is running your life, that is plaguing your life, 
in the darkness that you are living in. Turn from it. Believe and find true freedom in Jesus Christ. I want to end today with this. It's worth mentioning over and over and over again, as even as we read through John's gospel. John reveals in chapter 20, verse 30, uh, 31, the purpose of this book. That it was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This woman, like the woman at the well, came face to face with Jesus. She's forgiven, and she is told to go and sin no longer. And Jesus, the only one that day who could require that woman to be punished, instead would go on to be the one condemned in her place, in my place, in your place. Listen, every one of, every one of our sins stand exposed before God. I'll say that again. Every one of our sins stand exposed before God. But praise God that our hope can be found in Jesus Christ. And we can look forward to a glorious future. Would you guys please pray with me? God, thank you for this hope. Thank you for this hope that is found uh, in your Son, Jesus Christ, who would die such a brutal death in our place, who would be condemned in our place. God is, is the only person and the only way in which we can be seen as righteous. God, I, I pray that we would uh, take the weight of this passage and that it would go with us uh, today. That we would continue to fight against uh, our indwelling sin. And Lord, that we would um, rest in your grace and your mercy. God, I pray that you would uh, just continue to speak to those who have not put their faith in you. I pray that you would stir their heart. I pray that you uh, would move uh, the scales from their eyes. God, you are so gracious. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to.